Talk Zone presents Motivation with a Purpose Radio, the show that highlights the inspirational stories of people from all walks of life. Now, bringing you real inspiration, here are your hosts, Rich Hallstrom and Zeke Bambolo. Welcome to Motivation with a Purpose. Once again, every Friday morning at 11 a.m., where we try to inspire you to live and work with purpose. Right here on Talk Zone, the home of Motivation with a Purpose. Motivation with a Purpose. I'm Rich Alstrom, and my co-host Zeke Bambolo is right by my side once again. Zeke, we're going to have a great conversation this week. Spiritual discernment is on the docket. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. What uh, what an awesome topic. I'm so glad you came up with this idea. And uh, also, you came up with the idea of our guest uh, for this time of the year. But I am looking forward to a powerful conversation. Uh, and I think one that will today will apply very easily to Christians as much as to non-Christians. Because these are all questions that we have in our minds. And even if we've been Christians for a long time, sometimes we don't not, we do not have the proper answers to give, much less the conviction of why we believe what we believe. And so, uh, great idea, my friend, to come up with this, uh, conversation. I'm looking forward to a wonderful time as always with you on Motivation with a Purpose. Well, as I was thinking about the show ideas, spiritual discernment came to me because I see a lot of people having spiritual conversations about various subjects. And you see a lot of people have lots of different opinions on a various amount of spiritual subjects. And some of the questions that we'll seek to answer today are some of life's toughest questions like, are miracles real? Do cults really exist? Or other things like that. Is Mormonism a cult? Is the Church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints, a cult? Or what exactly is a cult? So all of these questions, can we trust the reliability of the Bible, uh, all affect us in one way or another, even if we don't believe a particular way or don't know what we believe. So... I think that is the fascinating aspect of today's show, as we can all sharpen our spiritual discernment and uh, look into some very important questions at the same time that may very well and should very well change our lives. Indeed, indeed, and and you know, you, you, we talk about some things there where you were you were asking some questions that are the big picture questions about faith and Christianity and maybe cults and so forth. But even so, uh, I want to also interject for those that are listening as well that it's also a question of just your everyday life is you know and 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 sometimes we have the hard time of discerning whether or not I should participate in those certain things. Let's even talk about you know the natural things of life, you know, sex and so forth, and you know it's. God is the creator, and he created me in a natural sense. Why should I suppress my feelings to do certain things? You know, things like that are all, that are, those are everyday questions that we are faced with, and not so much just about the cults and so forth, but I think we can take some time today with our guests to even explore some of those some of those thoughts and see how to best shape our belief systems in the best way that not only glorifies God, but gives us safety in the way we live life from one day to the next. So, so important, so good stuff today. Excellent points, Zeke, and ultimately it does come down to, and I think this is a little bit of what you were talking about just right now, how do we determine right and wrong? Mm. And I know we were been talking about some specific subjects, but that's really what it basis for making that decision. Should we make that decision? Is there an absolute decision in any situation? We will discuss all these things with our guest, Dr. Carl Payne, who is a pastor, teacher, speaker, and author, and currently is a pastor at Antioch Bible Church in Redmond, Washington, where his primary role is serving as pastor of leadership and development and discipleship training. He has also been the chaplain for the Seattle Seahawks football team since 1994, and it's my pleasure to bring him on to the show right now and welcome him to the Motivation with a Purpose Airwaves, Dr. Carl Payne. Carl, how hey, are you? 
Rich, I'm doing very well. It was uh, good uh, being able to listen on the phone to both you and Zeke, your uh, brother's beloved, and uh, what a joy to get to talk with you. Well, let's get right into the conversation, Carl. What is spiritual discernment, and are people really having conversations about spiritual discernment these days, from your perspective? Well, I I think the way I would answer that, Rich, is I would say that spiritual discernment is probably the ability to be able to sniff between what is uh, true and what isn't, uh, what is, uh, uh, at least in the context that I'm usually working with it with, would be what is uh, uh, the Spirit of God at work, which I want to listen to and I want to deal with, and what is demonic accusation which I don't really want to have anything to do with and just as soon ignore or leave it alone. But the discernment can be, you know, in a spiritual sense, being able to to understand the difference between the two. But I think, uh, you know, in a broader context, it's just being able to tell what's true and what isn't. Uh, when someone is talking to you, uh, do I believe this or are they believable or not? Is there something going on that just says, I hear those words, but I don't really think what's being said is accurate? So, uh, you know, you would say someone is discerning if uh, if they're able to kind of uh, uh, sniff through, be able to get through well, what's real and what isn't. And, and some people clearly have an ability to do that more effectively than others. I don't think you have to be a Christian to be a discerning person. I think there are plenty of people that are not Christians that can be very discerning. But uh, when you start talking about, uh, you know, from a Christian perspective, I, th- I think it changes the game. I think of 1 Corinthians 2.14, where it says to the natural man, the things of God are just, it's our English word for idiot, idiotic. Uh, they're spiritually appraised. They cannot understand. It just means... They can be as bright and as clever as they want to be, but the things of God just do not make sense to the natural man. It says that in the next two verses, to the one with the mind of Christ, they've learned to discern things. In other words, God, the Holy Spirit, gives us an ability to understand things spiritually that as a natural man or as a non-Christian just don't make sense sometimes. So when someone says to me, can you believe how our and I hope this is okay to say it this way. If it sounds like I'm swearing, I don't mean it that way. But when people say hell in a handbasket, you know, I mean, you see our culture, our world. I had someone say to me yesterday, I think we've lost our country. I mean, this place is just going the wrong way so fast. It's like a train. And if someone says, doesn't it surprise you how people can make such foolish decisions that in the long run are going to hurt them and hurt their kids? And all I go, no, no, not really. I, I'm, I'm not really surprised. I don't expect people who do not know and love Christ to say it is my responsibility to live sacrificially for other people. Unless you've been trained to live sacrificially for other people, most people say, I'm, I watch out for me, myself, and I. I'm going to live fast, die young, and make a good-looking corpse. I mean, that's what I expect. <laughs> Carl, oh, my friend, this is uh, this is Zeke here, and I would ask your permission now, as we go along, time to time, to allow me to play a bit of devil's advocate with you in this discussion, just to make sure we're doing our best to look at several sides of this issue. But as you as you just give us a little bit of deliberation there on the whole aspect of spiritual discernment. Um, I know there is a hint of laziness within us to even go and pursue truth as you know authentic truth, but a lot of times we are also up against the fact that we come from what we call these different traditions or different cultures or countries, and we, there's this melting pot. So there, as we talk about discernment here, and you give that good explanation, even with some good scripture to back that up in terms of how we're blinded to this stuff. I mean, someone who is saying, well, I hear all you, I mean, it's, it's, it's nice the way you, you said it, but my traditions, my culture don't allow me to just, you know, I mean, I, I'm a lot more relaxed than you are probably. I mean, so I, I want to discern, if I call it this, I want to choose truth from a different angle. I mean, how, how does that culture and traditions, traditions, excuse me, play into this whole thing? Is it just really, we're just flat out lazy or what's this, what, what do you think is going on? I think, um, man, it's a great question, Zeke. 
And I think a lot of it ultimately boils down to just the volitional choice of what I am going to choose uh, to believe is true. Uh, here's where I would go with that. Greg Kokel has written a book uh, about uh, relativism, uh, feet uh, planted firmly in midair. It's still the best book on the subject that I have ever read. It came out in about 07, 08 somewhere, and I have gone through probably hundreds of copies of that would be true. But uh, the truth is that there are different people who will say different things are true, or this is true for me, it doesn't have to be true for you, uh, don't push your views on me. Uh, in, in my culture, we believe. In your culture, you believe. And and what Kokel would point out is you say, ultimately, you end up with about three different types of ways of approaching this whole thing about relativism and how you determine truth. And he would say, first, you've got what would normally be called cultural truth. And, and essentially what it's saying is that since you have two different beliefs in two different cultures about a particular issue, that means, therefore, that neither one of them can be absolutely true. So what you end up saying is that whatever is true in a particular culture is what is true for me, and if something else is true in another culture, uh, then that's fine. They can believe that's true. But the, uh, the, the, the innuendo, Zeke, is that since cultures disagree sometimes on what is true or not, there cannot be an absolute true or something that's true with a capital T. And I will say, you know, I think that's really unfortunate to say that, because ultimately I am going to either say that culture determines truth or the individual determines truth or something else. That something else for me would be God. But if someone says that culture determines truth and you're in, if you don't like it, move to a different place. And the assumption is, since they have different ideas, you know, they can't both be right, so just live and let live with both of them. I go, what do you do when that culture, instead of saying something kind of innocuous, someone will say, like they use this as an example, you know, you go to India and they're, and they're primarily Hindus, and you go to America and they're primarily Christian, and you go to Saudi Arabia, they're primarily Muslim. So just allow their culture to determine truth, because whatever their culture believes is true is true, because no one can know for sure what's true. Well, what if one of those views really is true and one of them isn't? Uh, what if you take something different? What if you say, in my culture, it's okay to gas Jews? In other words, in the 30s, Hitler said, you know, with the German people, that they were going to see Jewish people and, and gypsies and a different group as subhuman, and it was okay to kill them. And if I'm to tell someone, well, you know, whatever you believe in your culture is fine, whatever I believe in my culture is fine, as long as you're choosing things that you say, you know, what color is the carpet going to be, no one cares. They'll kind of nod their head. But what do you do if the culture is teaching something that you go, clearly, that isn't right? And you'd say, how can you say something isn't right? If you don't think anything is absolutely true, then all you've got to say is culture determines truth. Well, I don't know anyone that's going to say it's okay to commit genocide. How about if we go to Ethiopia and say 1.5 million Christians have now been slaughtered by Muslims? Well, hey, if you happen to live outside Ethiopia and you don't like Christians, then it's okay to go in and, and, and slaughter Ethiopians because, you know, according to my culture, that's okay. I would say no. See, sometimes you have examples where you say it isn't just because we have different views culturally that means something can't be true. Sometimes cultural views can be really wrong. Now, the second type of... of uh, uh, relativism he talks about is conventional relativism. And basically, conventional relativism teaches that whoever has the most votes determines what's true. So if something isn't uh, true for you and you don't like it, then what you need to do is leave and go somewhere else where, you know, you can make up the majority. Basically, it's a nice way of saying might makes right. That's conventional truth. So if someone says, hey, if you don't like the fact that the Christianity gets a rough shake today in this country, then go somewhere where, you know, you can influence the truth and, and, and maybe you can get a good shake. But since we have the majority, conventional relativism, you know, might makes right. And I'm going, again, if you put it in something innocuous where it doesn't matter, what color are we going to paint the, 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 the floor? Uh, well, we're going to have green carpet and orange walls, and we have the most votes to make that work. Well, then you would go, okay, that's fine. Who cares? See, the, the majority make the truth. But what do you do when, again, when you start picking on things that really matter? Is it really true that might makes right? See, I've, I've said this, and I believe this, Zeke. If might makes right 
then you cannot have a social reformer. If might makes right, then Martin Luther King should have never stood up and and talked about, you know, judge a man by the character of his heart, not his color, because the majority of people at that time didn't agree with him. So if might makes right, he should have shut up. Gandhi should have never, you know, led demonstrations against the British if might makes right, uh, because he clearly was in the minority. But what happens if the majority are wrong? But see, relativism teaches that the majority determine what's truth in conventional relativism. So if the majority determine what's truth and you're not part of the truth, then you just toe the line. Well, I challenge that because I'm going, I do not believe that might necessarily makes right. Sometimes the majority are in the right, but sometimes they're in the wrong. And so what it tells me is that truth there is something that I know is true beyond the first type, cultural relativism, just what culture says, because sometimes culture can be wrong. So it's not relative to culture. And no, it's not relative to just the vote of the people, because sometimes, again, the majority can be wrong. They can say things that you just go, no, that's clearly wrong, and somebody should try and change that. And then the third time of a type of relativism he talks about is individual relativism. And that's where I think we're living a whole lot in North America today, whether it's old people or young people. Truth is whatever I want it to be. If it's true for me, that's fine. If it's not true for you, that's fine. I don't care. You know, let's just live and let live. I'll do what I want to do. You want to, You do what you want to do. And again, as long as you're dealing with basically civil people, you go live and let live. I, I guess that's fine. But see, I think Jesus raised the standard far beyond that. He didn't say live and let live. He said, love your enemies and pray for those who despitefully use you. It's not just a case of, see, live and let live is selfish. I want what I want, so I'm going to get what I want. You just leave me alone and make sure I get what I want. Well, what happens when you have a whole country and a whole nation, a culture of people just saying, it's all about live and let live and just let me live the way I want? What happens when views collide? And if they turn around and say, well, I determine truth, and there's a lot of people that believe that. It doesn't have to be true for you, but it's true for me. Well, what if it's wrong? What if what you're saying is wrong? What if I say it's okay to beat women? That is not uncommon at all in Hindu homes. For anyone that's worked with Hindus, I'm not saying all Hindus beat their wives, but not uncommon at all in Hindu homes to say that women are, are, are not uh, uh, seen near, nearly as high as they are in, in other countries. And if I say it's my wife, I'm free to do that. I do what I want to do. I'm the one who determines truth. What if it's someone that goes into a theater with a gun and says, I think I would like to start shooting people? And I would say, you can't do that. Well, they would say, don't tell me I can't do that. Well, I think that's wrong. Well, who are you to tell me that's wrong? It may be wrong for you, but it's not wrong for me. I can do what I want to do. See, sometimes you have individuals when they say, I'm free to do what I want to do. What happens when they do stuff that just violates everything that's in you? You just know it innately inside. It's better to tell the truth than to lie. It's better to help people than to hurt people. So people that say, I stand on individual truth. I'm the one who determines truth. Truth is relative. I go, man, that's how you get sociopaths. That's how you get psychopaths, because they think they can do anything they want. So if I look at that, and I'll just wrap it this way and say, cultural truth, I think there can be truth in all kinds of cultures, sometimes worded the same way, sometimes worded differently. But because different cultures disagree sometimes, doesn't mean there isn't something that's right and wrong. Sometimes it means someone got it right and someone got it wrong. And on conventional truth, again, the majority is not always wrong, but just because someone stands in the majority doesn't mean the positions can't be challenged if what they're saying is not correct. And if someone says, the only way you know what's correct is by the, by what the majority says, then you better hope you're never a minority. Yeah. Because if you better hope you're never on that side. But- so, yes, yeah, so we're going to do, Carl. We're, we're about to cut to our, our first break here. And before we do that, I want to come back on the next segment with this question, Carl, for you to examine with us. You've given us, obviously, a, a different way to look at the convention, like you said, and, and the might is right, or it can, might can't be right, options to look at for how we, uh, we examine truth. But I want you to come back with us in the next segment here and talk about a two-part question with me. The first one, it kind of hinges on the fact that, okay, it's kind of a, a user manual's mentality. It's like, when I go and get a new electronics, I must first mixer, especially if I haven't used it before, I've never seen it, I've got to read the user's manual to make sure exactly that I'm using this electronics right. But at the same time, then 
That means there must be a manufacturer. So in this, if we're going to live life correctly, we must use a user manual. And I believe that we must first come to the conclusion that God is indeed the manufacturer or the organizer or the, or the, the, the builder of life. So let's talk about that in, in, in reference to what you just told us about what truth is. In, in this absolute sense, we'll come back from the break. Does that sound like a plan for you? Sounds great. All right, so this is Motivation with the Purpose. And again, here we are with Carl Payne, our guest today, and we'll be right back to the show. You're listening to Motivation with a Purpose Radio on TalkZone.com. Back to your hosts, Rich Hallstrom and Zeke Bambolo. Our topic is spiritual discernment. Our guest is Dr. Carl Payne from Antioch Bible Church in Redmond, Washington. And Zeke, before the break, you brought up a very interesting question. Let's continue our conversation along that line. Indeed, indeed, my brother. So, Dr. Payne, we were talking, you know, and it's just about if we're going to live life well, if we're going to use, I mean, I use the, I gave the user's manual man, uh, analogy that, but if we're going to live life well, we must live life according to the creator or the manufacturer of life. In this case, we're asking, first of all, with regards to relative truth, or is truth relative, or can it be relative? Is God truly real? And if so, why are, should we not really subscribe to his user manual on how we should live life? Well, for sure, Zeke, you would know as a pastor, I'm I'm going to jump all over that one and say, you know, absolutely. Uh, Romans chapter 1 tells me that one of the ways that I know what is true is through my conscience. And that's why I said before, I don't have to be a Christian to know what's true or not true in many ways. I know it's better to tell the truth, and that's why I feel guilty when I lie. How do I know that? Because the Word of God tells me that. Jesus also said the, the, the Word, the Word is truth, and that I'm supposed to study, Paul says, uh, the truth. Uh, for a Christian, you want to talk about a manual, the Bible is my manual, and I don't apologize for that, and I don't think I should have to apologize for that. I thought about, uh, I don't, I'm going to jump on you just a little bit or jump the topic, but see if I can tie it back in and, and help me. If, if I take it too far away, you tell me. But I thought about, I was giving, recently talking about spiritual warfare. And uh, I asked uh, the group, I said, you know, if you were on a destroyer and you were plowing through the water and you had been trained to throw depth charges in the water to blow up submarines and you had been taught to shoot anti-aircraft guns in the air to kill enemy airplanes if they're trying to bomb your ship, I said, you can work all day long and become an expert at throwing depth charges in the water for submarines and for shooting uh, down air, air, airplanes with anti-aircraft guns. But if I said, if, if you are suddenly being attacked up above and there are airplanes circling up above and you tell everybody on that ship, get to your positions and get the defense ready, and they start throwing depth charges in the water by the hundreds and they start you know, killing fish by the thousands, and those airplanes come down and, and bomb that ship and send it to the bottom of the ocean, if as that ship is going down, you can hear some of the sailors going, who made this stupid ship? Who made this stupid manual? This doesn't work. I mean, I, I, I threw the depth charges in the water just like I was supposed to, and we still got, you know, sunk. This thing doesn't work. I'm going to hold it. The, the one who made the manual assumes that you're going to be able, to, if you want to use the word discern, or tell the difference between attacks that come from above or attacks that come from below. And if the attacks come from below, you throw in depth charges. If attacks come from above, you use the anti-aircraft guns. If you're too lazy to figure out how to use which system you've been given against which enemy, you don't blame the designer for the problem you're on the bottom of the sea now, you blame the operator saying, if you had understood how this works, you would have been just fine. And I think to myself, the problem, again, wasn't the designer of the ship. It wasn't the designer of the defense systems. It's an operator. It doesn't know what they're doing. So if someone says to me, has God give us an operating manual? I believe that's what the Bible is, Old and New Testament. And I believe when I am walking consistent with that book, I believe that I don't have to stumble on truth. I think I can know what's true. I don't think I have to stumble on responses. I can know how I should respond. If, on the other hand, I say I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, or if I said I'm, I'm Jewish and I you know, believe the Old Testament is true, but I do not do 
what the operating manual says. In this situation, you respond this way. In this situation, you respond that way. If I choose to be lazy and say, I don't have time to read that book, and then I feel like my life is a spiritual wreck, I go, don't blame the, oper- don't, don't, don't blame the designer of the manual. He laid out the information. It's there. You look at the operator and say, if you choose to be lazy and not understand how to respond, put the finger on yourself, not on the one who put together the manual. He knew what he was doing when he wrote it. And I, I don't know if that's a good example or not, but it hit, ran through my mind just as you said that. See, I run into too many Christian people that will say, don't know how I should act as a husband, don't know how I should act as a wife, don't know how I should respond as an employee or as a son or a daughter, and I'm going... You don't need more information if you know what's true. You just need to do what you should do. But sometimes I look at the culture like we talked about before and say, well, I don't want to do what I think I should. I want to do what I want to do, or I want to do what my friends expect me to do. And then when I feel guilty about it, I'm going, gosh, this is terrible. I go, don't blame God you feel guilty. If there's someone to blame, you go, you're supposed to be able to discern the difference between what's right, what's wrong, and choose to do the thing that's right. I heard a song a long time ago. Uh, DC uh, Talk did it, and I, I liked it. I mean, it's an old group. I think they're busted up now. But they were talking about freedom, and they said freedom's not the, uh, the ability to do anything you want. True freedom is the ability to do what you know is the right thing to do. And I like that. I got that's good. Carl, to relate that to, to relate my next question to what you just said, tell us about your own spiritual journey because you just didn't arrive at all these things yesterday. I know that you yourself had a very unique spiritual journey. Tell us about that. Well, Rich, I'm going to say first that everybody's journey is unique because every one of us are different, fearfully and wonderfully made in God's hand. I talked yesterday with a uh, a young person that said they wanted to kill themselves because they thought they were worthless and they thought that everybody else, you know, everything was right for them. And, and I, I, I took them to Ephesians 2.10. And I said, do you understand that Ephesians 2.10 says we are his workmanship, that means God's workmanship, created. You know, we're a masterpiece, we're his workmanship, we're a unique masterpiece created to walk in the good work which God beforehand determined that we would walk in that he, he's created for us to walk in. And I said, you're a masterpiece, young lady. You're unique. You're one of a kind. You don't have to be like the other kids. You need to be the best you that you can be. God took the time to make you the way you are. Uh, Psalm 139, uh, 12 through 14 says you're fearfully and wonderfully made, so quit looking at other people and comparing yourself to them and be who you're supposed to be. And she looked at me wide open and says, well, I've always felt like I was kind of inferior. I go, no. So I think everybody's story ultimately is unique. But my bottom line would be, Rich, I was raised in a very moral home. Uh, We didn't have very much uh, financially for most of my uh, growing up. Uh, We didn't know we were poor because my parents never told me we were poor. But by sixth grade, I had jobs, and there was never a time I wasn't working. Because if if I wanted a bike, I had to buy my bike. If I wanted a if I wanted a guitar, I had to buy the guitar. You know, if I wanted a bow and arrow, I had to buy it. So, you know, you work for what you want, which is not wrong. But yeah, now I think sometimes kids feel like parents are entitled. You know, they're entitled. Parents have to do this for them. Well, I grew up in a home where I just knew there wasn't much extra to do that. So if you wanted it, you had to figure out a way to do it. As far as spirituality, there I was. There was nobody in my family that was a Christian. People would have said we were a moral family. I can remember my my dad would say, if you say yes, then keep your word. Your yes should mean yes. Your no should mean no. But if you said was that biblically based, you would say the principle is. But my dad would have just said it's the right thing to do. So keep your word. Why? Because you're supposed to tell the truth, not lie, son. Um, one of my neighbors uh, kept uh, stealing my dad's carrots. My dad loved a uh, uh, garden. And he would come over and take the carrots. So I went over to his house because I like watermelon. And his dad grew watermelon. I took the watermelon. And when I came back home, I walked out. I was six years old. I was in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. And my dad, I walked in, and I had a watermelon for the family. And my dad walked out, and he said, where'd you get the watermelon? And I said, from so and so's garden, and he said, "Why did you take that?" I don't. Know. He said, "That wasn't our garden. That was his garden." And I said, "Well, his son always takes your carrots, so I'm taking his watermelon." And he said, "Because someone else does something wrong, doesn't mean it's okay for you to do it wrong. Take back his watermelon." I said, "I've got a what?" 
He said, you knock on the front door and you give his dad back. So I knocked on the door, he opened the door, and I said, I stole your watermelon. And I gave it back to him, and I was so humiliated. I mean, my dad taught me a lesson, and if it's not yours, leave it alone. So, in other words, the, we were moral, but but not Christian. I was 17 years old when uh, the first time I heard the gospel. When people say everybody in America knows the gospel because it's a Christian nation, that's nonsense. Nations aren't don't don't have a personal religion. Nations are just made up of people. Uh, you know, we happen to have a predominant number of people historically that are Christian, although that number has changed. If you're reading any of the polling data that's coming out, that's changed significantly. Right. Um, right. But at any rate, I was 17 years old. Someone explained the gospel to me, and I said, if this is true, why wouldn't I want it? I would love to have this if this is true. And so one night, June 17, 1978 p.m., Woodleaf, California, a Young Life Ministry, I asked Jesus Christ to come into my life and be my Savior. And uh, he did. He changed my life. And, Rich, the thing that was funny for me, since most of my friends were not Christians, my activities were not Christian, you know, by and large, uh, I lost friends when I became a Christian. I, I had friends that the people I thought were friends were going, you're, you're really serious about this Jesus stuff, because I was reading my Bible all the time. I was wearing a T-shirt that says, God loves you. And instead of my friends uh, flowing to me saying, I want your Jesus, I had people saying, if you're not going to go smoke dope with us anymore, if you're not going to go drink with us anymore, whatever, it's like we don't have anything in common. And I'm thinking, you're trying to tell me the only thing we had in common was dope? The only thing we had in common was alcohol or whatever? And I thought, I learned the difference at age 17, the difference, Rich, between a leech who will use you when it's convenient for them and dump you when it's not, and a true friend who will stick by you no matter what. And I found out that a lot of people I thought were friends were actually leeches. They were acquaintances. So I went through a time where I felt like I had nobody. And uh, basically, it forced me on Fridays and Saturdays and whenever I'd be in my room reading and reading and reading because I wasn't going to go out and do the do dirty stuff anymore. And, you know, people say, man, you poor guy, that must have, you know, you became a Christian, everything's supposed to get better. You became a Christian and look what happened. And I go, no, no, it was a great thing. Because what I found out was me and God make a majority. I found out I'm going to survive with or without other people that call themselves my friends or not. I found out that God is faithful even when people aren't. So I learned that as long as I have God on my side, I don't care who's on the other side. Then when I really did have a friend, I would call you you and Zeke both my friends. That's just a joy. That's like icing on the cake because you got someone that really will cover your back. But I don't have to say if I don't have a couple of personal friends, I can't survive. That's an insult to God Almighty. God Almighty, that's why Paul writes in Romans 8.31, if God's for you, it doesn't matter who's against you. So if you happen to have people that, you know, will stand with you, that's good. You lock arms, makes it easier. But if you don't, I will survive. As long as God's got me breathing, I will survive. So I learned that at 17, and it forced me into my Bible. And the good news about it, Rich, was the more I read, the more I started seeing the difference between what was cultural and what was true, what was individual but what was actually true, because the book would just lay it out for me. I remember when I went to Bible school, I mean, there were some silly things that would happen, Rich, but I went to Bible school, I went to Multnomah School of the Bible, and I ended up going to Western Seminary. But when I first went there uh, at the Multnomah, I can remember when kids would make fun of me. I went in as a long-haired kid, because my hair was long. Now, if you know me, I'm glad to have any hair, right? But I mean, man... (laughs) They shaved my hair off. I felt like a naked poodle, man. They, you know, back then in the day, you had to, you know, the only way you were really spiritual was if, you know, you had, you know, if I look more like you, Rich, you know, shave the head. Then they said you're spiritual. But if you're a kid like me, anyway, I said, I don't care. I want the Bible. So they shaved my head. I go into classes where there's kids that have known the Bible their whole life, and I've only been a Christian a little less than two years. And some of the kids in class would say to me, you know, Carl, what do you think of the book of Hezekiah? And I said, I don't know. I read a New Testament. I wouldn't even read an Old Testament kind of thing, you know? And I, I'm going through, and I'm I'm looking now in a Bible for the book of Hezekiah, and I can't find it. And they're laughing at me. And I'm going, why would you do that to me? And they go, well, man, you got a lot of enthusiasm, but you don't know very much of your Bible yet. I go, well, New Testament, I, I, I hold my own. Old Testament, I don't know much. But then I'd see stuff like, they'd say, we're going to go out and share our faith. <laughs> and I would watch how many of the kids would run from that, or they'd get suddenly sick, you know, that day. 
And I'm going, I was used to sharing my faith every day to anyone who would listen to me, anyone who would talk to me. So when they said, let's go out and share with people about Jesus, I go, that's great, let's go. And some of those same people who probably ran circles around me in their Bible knowledge, but they were absolutely cutless. I mean, they were great on paper. As long as it was on paper and they were critiquing someone, you know, they looked really, really spiritual. But as soon as you'd say, let's go out and talk to people, they'd have so many excuses. And, uh, you know, the guy I work with, Hutch, he'll say sometimes people are educated beyond their obedience. And I said, you know, the first time I saw that was at some, a place I loved. I love Bible school. I love seminary. I encourage people wanting to go into vocational ministry to go to both. But you run into people sometimes that they know a lot of stuff theoretically, but they're scared to death to put it on the table. I'll go, that's pretty worthless. Yeah. So as, as I was growing, you know, I went through the Bible school and the seminary and such and ended up very involved, you know, 20 years in youth ministry. And then I've spent 21 years here with Hutch at, at uh, Antioch Bible Church. But for me, what mattered really, Rich, Zeke, was what can you put on the table? That's why discipleship so important to me. What can you put on the table? So maybe it was from not being around that and not being a family that encouraged me in spiritual things and not having friends who encouraged me in spiritual things, which some people would say is a bummer. That was what drove me, know your Bible and know how to give it to somebody else, because ultimately I depend on God Almighty. I don't depend on people. So when people are there, I rejoice. I'm glad for them. But if they're not there, I will survive as long as God gives me breath. Oh, so yes, we got we've got a couple of minutes before our next break segment, and I want you to touch on something for us before we go into break and come back with our last uh, our last segment, I believe. But here's the question: Is you know there there's this whole idea now that the the Bible must be obsolete, especially you're talking about uh, how people are you know, put something on the table, for example, and there's the the thought that. Back then, you know, people barely had light. And we have all this new technology and stuff today that we know so much more than we think was known back then. So is the Bible still relevant to uh, this modern truth that we have? What would you say to that? Just for a quick couple of minutes here. Well, Zeke, I would say that if something is true, it doesn't matter whether it's old or whether it's new. In other words, if something's true, then by definition, it's something that, that you can stand on. It's something that's firm. That's why Christ says that they compared himself to the rock and to base your life on the rock, which will always be there and always be true, not sand, which, you know, which slides away. But if somebody says to me, gosh, you know, they were just dumb Bedouins back in the, you know, the, when they were putting the Bible together, I'm going, you know, uh, you could really make an argument that many of the people in Christ, they were more literate than we are today. When you think of people that were supposed to know, what, Aramaic? That was the trade language. You were supposed to know Hebrew so you could read your scriptures. You were supposed to know Greek. Uh, you know, that's that's uh, that, that's the, the common language. You know, so you end up with three languages. Uh, you know, they were so surprised at Paul because Paul could flip in out of Greek and Hebrew at the same time. So I go, people today that think because they have computers and such, it makes them smarter. I would say it gives you access to more information, but it doesn't necessarily make you smarter. So when someone says to me, well, hasn't again, truth evolved, I go, not if it's truth. If it's truth, it's, it's as true yesterday as it was today. If I'm supposed to be faithful to my wife, that doesn't matter whether that was God giving that in the book of Genesis when he established marriage or whether it's me saying it today. I'm supposed to be faithful to my wife. You know, when Jesus says, when they, when they ask Jesus, for what reason should a man divorce his wife? And he says, what God has brought together, let no man take apart. So if someone says, what's God's heart concerning marriage? He would say, love your wife and stay married to her. Love your husband and stay married to him. So if someone says, well, that used to be true, I would say, unless God changes his opinion, it's still true. If someone says, love your enemies and pray for those that despitefully use you, did Christ tell me to do that? Yes. Was Christ truth? Yes. Did Christ speak truth? Yes. Then I would say it's as true today that I'm still supposed to love my enemies and pray for those who despitefully use me because the one who said it is the one who is true. And as long as he is true, that's my job to do. And if someone says, well, doesn't truth change? I would say, well, if God's character changes, and I suppose you could say it, but I don't believe it does. I don't believe God's character does change. Ultimately, what I believe goes back to, believe this or not, Zeke, goes back to this question. Did Christ rise from the dead? Christ claimed to be true. 
If Christ rose from the dead, he validated and vindicated his claims, which means when he made statements, I need to listen to what he says, because it's not an opinion, it's true. And then in Luke 24, 44, where Christ validates the Old Testament, because he signs off on the Old Testament, several different places, but Luke 24, 44 is one, that if Christ is true, and if Christ believed the Old Testament was true, then I don't say that the Old Testament is an opinion, or the New Testament is opinion. I'm going to say, understand it in context, I need to stand on what's true, and that's as true for a Christian today as it was 2,000 years ago. More with Dr. Carl Payne on this edition of Motivation with a Purpose after this time out. It's time for more Motivation with a Purpose radio on TalkZone.com. Now, back to your hosts, Rich Hallstrom and Zeke Bambolo. Yes, indeed, ladies and gentlemen, this is a good, good, wonderful Friday afternoon here and more late morning for us in Seattle. And we have been talking with our good friend, Dr. Carl Payne. This is Zeke Bambolo here, and as always, on my side, my good friend, Rich Holstrom is here with me. Dr. Payne, you've been blessing us so much with some very great knowledge, and we want to continue to glean from your knowledge here. And I think one thing I would like people to understand and know about you, you talked a little bit about it, but you didn't give us, I want you to help us get us, get us a, a, diff, a deeper clue into who you are, especially with focus on your book, Spiritual Warfare. There are so many out there that are fighting this, 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 fighting this battle, and you have done a tremendous job with your book, Spiritual Warfare. So can you take a couple of minutes here, first of all, in this early part of the segment, to just tell us about what is that about, and how, how do we get a handle on that book, please? Oh, Zeke, thank you. I, I, I speak literally coast to coast on that now, and a lot of the interviews I do are on that subject. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, Bottom line was, in my training through Bible school and seminary, uh, we were basically told that spiritual warfare was just kind of a thing for neurotic Christian people, and if they would just read their scriptures and memorize verses, things always get better. And if you ask, what's the difference between battles with the world, the flesh, and the devil, I I would have told you, uh, well, I know that the Bible says there are battles with the world, the flesh, and the devil, but I don't know the difference between them. And then if somebody said to me, well, which they didn't, I mean, that's part of what the book is about. Chapter 4 is about how in the world do you recognize attacks from the world. First John 2, 15 to 17 and James 4, 4 say we get hit with attacks from the world. And the response is to biblical is in verse 17 of First John 2, evaluate and don't sell out cheap. Why? The things of this world are fading away, but the things of God abide forever. So if if you're being attacked externally, by the world, because worldly attack is external. It's like a billboard with a naked woman on it, or, you know, half-naked selling a truck. You would say it triggers a physiological response in you, or maybe it's the lust of the eye. I see you have something, I want it, and God's held out on me until I get it. At least I think. I go, no, no, no. Remember, the things of this world, they're fading away, but it's the eternal things that last forever. Evaluate it. Uh, that woman may be pretty, but she's not worth my wife. She's not worth my ministry. She's not worth my character. So as I evaluate, I say no to the things that are temporary, and I say yes, the things are eternally true. I'm going to be faithful and do the right thing. When I'm looking at the flesh, I suggest that book in chapter 5. Our struggles with the flesh are internal. Romans seven fifteen to 25 and uh, Galatians five seventeen both say that as a believer, not just a non-Christian. In Galatians 5, says the spirit wars against the flesh, the flesh against the spirit. These are in opposition to one another that you may not do the things you choose to do. Well, I'm going, that's a traitor inside. And in Romans 7, Paul says four different times that there's an evil entity within me, even as a believer, that the good I want to do, I don't always do the things I don't want to do. I do sometimes. What in the world's going on? Well, when I read, how do you respond to these attacks? 2 Timothy 2.22 says some things from the flesh are so hot, you run from them. But Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 says that some things are just sloppy thinking. As a man thinks in his mind, so is he. That sounds like Proverbs 23, 7. So learn how to think right, you do right. Think wrong, you do wrong. So some things aren't so hot, you, you just can't handle them. Some things, it's just a case you're being sloppy. 
But there's other things. Galatians 5.16 says, when you walk controlled by the Spirit, you will not carry out the strong desires of the flesh. So I'll say, interesting, when I'm dealing with the external solicitation from the world, I evaluate the solicitation and say, yes, the things of God, no to the things of time. But when I'm dealing with the world, I'm told sometimes it's too hot, run. I'm told sometimes it's just your sloppy thinking, renew your mind. And sometimes you're not being controlled by the Spirit. Then when I throw the demonic, that's chapter 6 in my book, I read in James chapter 4, demons are real. When they attack you, you resist them firmly in your faith. Or First Peter 5, when you're attacked demonically, resist them firmly in your faith and they will flee from you. Resisting is not running. Resisting is fighting. So the questions I started dealing with as a pastor was, if I don't know where the attacks are coming from, the world, the flesh, or the devil, it wouldn't matter if there was one generic response. Read scripture, memorize, and everything gets better. But the problem is that Scripture doesn't lay out one generic response. So depending on how I'm being attacked should depend or determine how I respond if I want to win in attacks instead of lose. And what I found out, and I'm going to make a couple of generalizations, Zeke, very few people are writing anything about here's how you recognize and deal with the world, here's how you recognize and deal with the flesh, here's how you recognize and deal with the demonic. I could go to one part of the Christian community and everything is demonic. Until it gets ridiculed. You know, who? Oh, come on, you make demons out of everything. I go to the other side of the Christian community, and nothing is demonic. Unless you happen to be a missionary, stuck somewhere, don't even worry about it. And the truth is, the Bible says all three are real. If you want to win instead of lose, you better figure out how to recognize and respond. And since I didn't see many people doing that, I decided to write the book Spiritual Warfare, Christians, Demonization, and Deliverance. And... Uh, I don't mean this snooty, but just for the last year on Amazon, it's been their number one seller on books having anything to do with God, the devil, demons. They lump everything together at Amazon because they're not a Christian publishing house, right, or or, or sales house. So they've got about 15,000 titles dealing with anything paranormal. That book has been number one on Amazon's list for, for almost a year now. And what it says is, and what I hear from people is, you write simple, you write clear, you help me understand the difference between the world, the flesh, and the devil, but then more important, you don't just tell me the difference, you show me how to respond to it. And I'm now winning battles instead of losing battles, and I go, God bless you, that's what I want for you. Carl, what I hear you saying is the right knowledge used in the right way creates power for us to use that God has given us so that we can have a win a win win situation so that we know what we're dealing with in a, in the spiritual realm and in our daily lives in every area of our life and one of the things that you also do to help people is you have a world apologetics conference and that's going to be coming up on April 19th and April 20th why don't you tell us a little bit about that in our remaining moments, and then I'll follow up with another question. Oh, Rich, thank you. Yeah, this is our 11th year with the Apologetics Conference. The speakers this year are David Barton, who is a well-known Christian historian, Gary Habermas, who's from Liberty University on the East Coast, and, and without any question, considered the leading expert on anything to do with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's the one everybody likes to quote. Doug Guyvett, who's been the head of the philosophy department at Talbot Seminary for, I don't know, probably 15, 20 years now. And then Doug Powell, who'll be here for the first time. He's a he's a former rocker, a former musician, who ended up being trained under Habermas and uh, uh, now does so much in the world of apologetics, but he puts everything to modern media. You know, he does a real good job tying things to music and film and all of that. And uh, what I've asked is that all four of those guys will do what we've asked the last 10 years in a row of different speakers. Will you take the questions that people are asking today about the Christian faith, whether it's attacking the Christian faith or trying to affirm the Christian faith or curiosity about the Christian faith, pick the questions you see as most important and then lay out the answers for us in a way that everybody there can go, Gosh, the next time I get that question, I can answer that. So, like, one of the things Habermas is going to deal with is the new atheist, you know, the stuff with, with Hitchens and Dawkins and Harris and Dennett and those, that group. They call themselves the new atheist. 
and and the different view they have on Jesus and who he was, they'll tear him apart, and he can do a great job with it. You know, you have so many people talking about the the founding fathers and what they believed about this church and were they Christian or religious or not. David Barton does a fantastic job dealing with who the founding fathers were and what this country was supposed to be about and 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 you know how it was founded, etc. In other words, different different ones doing. Uh, Doug Guyvitt's going to one of his topics is going to be science and the Bible. Are they compatible? And he'll do a wonderful job dealing with subjects like that. So I've done it. For 11 years, and I asked people if you would like to come and have an opportunity to have some people that are very good in their respective areas lay out questions and answers so you can go back to your school, your home, work, wherever it is, and the next time questions like that come up, instead of ducking them or running from them, say, man, those are great questions. Let's talk about it. I believe Carl, first real, Peter three, Carl first Peter real three, quickly. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go no, go ahead, Carl. I was just going to say, First Peter three fifteen says that Christians are responsible to have reasonable answers for reasonable questions, and too many times we run from that. We've got a responsibility to help people with their questions. Carl, real quickly, how can we get signed up for the conference? And my final question: What do you want to leave with us today? What do you want us to remember from today's show? Okay, I'll do those in order. You can sign up online at www.abchurch.org, just Antioch Bible Church, abchurch.org. You can sign up online, or if they call here, 425-556-5905, and ask for Jan, 425-556-5905. It's going to be at Mars Hill in Bellevue at their church, the Mars Hill Bellevue campus. And if they want, as long as there's room, we've got 900 chairs, they can take a chance and just walk in and sign up if they want. If they're not doing anything, come on over. Now, if there have been too many, I can't create chairs that aren't there. Uh, but I'd love to have more people, and I guarantee, I've told people if they come and don't think it's worth it, I'll give them back their money. I've not had one person in 10 years say I want my money back, not one person. What I would like to leave with you, I think, Rich and Zeke, and I think it would be something both of you would affirm, Christians are supposed to be soldiers, not spectators. We're supposed to be in the fight, not sitting on the bleachers, watching it go on. Proverbs 24 says that we're supposed to be trying to hold those back that we see struggling going to death. And instead of trying to blend in to look like everybody else so they think we're hip, they think we're cool, uh, instead of truth is where we started with Zeke's first question, being relative and kind of blowing in the wind like the Seattle weather, I think we're supposed to have the courage to be the people that we're called to be, Paul says four different times, walk worthy of your calling and be able to have reasons why we believe what we believe, share them in a respectful way. If people say you're out of your mind, that's on their back. But if I don't have a response to their question, that's on my back. And that means don't be lazy, be a soldier, do your work, and have the courage to stand up and say, I'm not throwing Jesus under the bus for people that are leeches most of the time anyway. I'm gonna. I want to hear long term. Jesus say, "Well done, good and faithful servant." Instead of, "Why do you throw me under the bus for people that once you became a Christian or wanted to walk with God, didn't become very tolerant, didn't become very open minded, they chewed you up anyway?" I go, "Was it worth it?" Walk with God. Excellent, excellent advice, Carl. Carl Payne has been our guest on this edition of Motivation with a Purpose. I'm Rich Hallstrom for Zeke Bambolo. Join us next week for another exciting episode of Motivation with a Purpose right here on TalkZone.com.